We're continuing on in our series on the five solas. And one of the things we said last week is that there, were, there was a lot of tradition, a lot of different traditions born out of the Protestant Reformation. But there is a heritage that's common to all of the Reformation churches. And in the 20th century, scholars looked back and said, uh, these are five solas or five theological principles that bind this movement oftentimes that we still call Protestantism. And 500 years later, we wanted to look back and ask ourselves, uh, A, do we, do we rightly understand these principles, these doctrines? Uh, and even if we rightly understand them, how would we practice them? How would we live them out in everyday life? So last week, we talked about Scripture, talking about that Scripture isn't the only authority we have, but it is our highest authority. And this week, we're talking about sola fide, or faith alone. Uh, I have a bench uh, in my house. It's at my kitchen table. Some of you have experienced what I'm about to share. This is a, a Craigslist bench. I know there are people in here that build benches such as these that I, you're going to come up. You can. You may give you permission come up and talk to me about the fact that I need a new bench. After I share this story, you can build one for me. But there's a bench that is a wonderful bench. It fits beautifully. Uh, we bought it on Craigslist. But there is a, there's a problem with this bench, and if you get too close to the edge, right, if you rest your body weight in a certain spot, uh, the wrong spot, uh, you will fall. The whole bench will tip. However, if you keep your weight close to the center, you're safe. Biblical faith uh, is a lot like this, right? When you're a preacher, you start thinking those types of things. You look, you're like, yeah, that's sermon illustration right there. A person just fell off the floor right? They didn't rest in the right place on this bench. But the more I thought about it, it's amazing. Faith in the Bible is really about where we locate the resting point of our life. Wherever you locate the resting point of your life is what you ultimately have faith in. And biblically speaking, the resting point of our life is to be Jesus Christ. Paul says in our passage that he wants to gain Christ. And in a sense, this doctrine, sola fide, is getting at the question of how does one gain Christ? That is to say, how does one gain the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that happened? How does that get applied to our life? How do we gain him? Really, the most important decision any of us will make any day of our life, the same decision we'll continue to make day after day, is what will we choose for the resting point of our life. What will we rest in? And whatever our choice is, we'll gain all the benefits and all of the losses that come with that decision, right? Like any other decision we make, what we think was a benefit sometimes is actually a loss. And what we thought would be a loss becomes a benefit. So when you choose this ultimate thing you'll place your trust in, you get all the gains and all of the losses. It's like when you get a free ticket to Disney, in August, and you think it's a good choice for your day, and then you get there, and there are some benefits you gain. However, it's also like being on the face of the sun, and it's humid all at the same time, and you realize by choosing this, I received some benefits. I also received some losses. So every choice we make, we receive the benefits and the losses. 
As we see in our passage this morning, the choice of trust when it comes to Jesus, whatever we place our rest in will either connect us to Jesus or cut us off from Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about. And this question of resting, of applying the work of Jesus to our life, this was the fundamental issue of the Protestant Reformation. Some people say this was the material cause. In other words, without this issue, without this question, the Protestant Reformation may never have happened. And it wasn't only faith, it was this little word alone. Faith alone. When Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, he, he fundamentally challenged many things. And one of the things that he fundamentally challenged was the system in the Roman Catholic Church of penance. And we'll talk more about that when we get to grace alone. But for now, suffice it to say that the question was, how is a person made right before God? Or that word is justified. How is a person justified? You see, there's, there's no question for Roman Catholics then or now, or for Protestants then or now, that for salvation, we all need grace, we all need Christ, and we all need faith. The question is, what applies the work of Jesus to our life to make us right before God? Is it faith plus something else? Or is it faith alone? That is the question. Is it faith alone? There was no debate about the need for faith. The debate was, is faith alone what applies the work of Jesus to our life and makes us right before God? So Luther said, justification by faith alone was the chief, is the chief article by which the church stands or falls. John Calvin, another reformer, says, this is the hinge of which everything else in the Christian life turns. So he changes the metaphor. And then maybe a, a contemporary person, J.I. Packer, likened this doctrine to the mythological uh, atlas Right? So you think about Atlas holding the entire globe on his shoulders and that if Atlas shrugs, everything crumbles. Same idea, Packer says, this doctrine is like Atlas. If we lose this doctrine, everything falls. So if this is true, and I think it is, then the two things that I want us to get at this morning is one, how would we rightly continue to profess this doctrine, faith alone? And then I want to spend a majority of our time on how do we rightly live or practice this doctrine of faith alone. So to get at rightly professing it, let's ask a question, what is faith? What would you say to that? What is faith? Like love, it's one of these words that gets passed around a lot. But what does it mean? What is faith, biblically speaking? Well, faith, biblically speaking, first of all, is a gift of God. Right? There's nothing inside of us that brings about saving faith. It's a gift of God, And it's a gift of God in that when we hear the proclamation of the word of God, the Holy Spirit awakens in us a desire to look away from ourself and our own record to Jesus. Because all of a sudden we'll see him as trustworthy. We'll see him as beautiful. We'll see him as reliable. That turning away from yourself is the gift of faith. That you'll actually look upon Jesus and put your weight of trust in him. And this is a gift in response to the word brought about by the Holy Spirit. So if that's faith, what faith is not is another important thing to address. Faith is not the ground of our salvation, okay? The sacrifice of Jesus is the only ground for our salvation. You're not saved 
because of your faith. You're saved because of the work of Christ. Because nothing we do is good enough to gain God's forgiveness. Not even our faith is worthy of him. So faith is not the ground of salvation and faith is not the cause of our salvation. We already said this. The cause of our salvation is the Holy Spirit. He brings about in us this gift, this desire to look away from our own record, to look away from our own works, to look away from ourself and to look at Jesus. So if faith is a gift and it's not the ground for our salvation and it's not the cause of our salvation, then what is the role of faith since it's so important in our salvation? The role of faith is that faith is an instrument or a means by which we receive the work of Jesus on our behalf. Some people talk about, they compare it to open hands, right? You you reach out with open hands and God fills those open hands with his love. Some people talk about Uh, The fact that you may need to take a medicine and the medicine is what saves you, right? But how do you take that medicine into yourself? Well, there's an instrument of some type. Maybe it's a syringe. Maybe it's a a spoon that you use and you actually take it to your mouth. It's not the spoon or the syringe that saves you or that heals you. Those are merely the instruments by which you are connected, by which you are brought into the presence of that thing which saves you. This idea of an instrument causes comes from Aristotle, and he talks about a, a sculptor. How does a sculptor bring about the sculpture from the block of marble or whatever rock he's using? Well, the instrument is the chisel. So you see, faith is an instrument that connects us to the work of Christ. Your trust, your faith won't earn you anything, but it does connect you with Christ who has earned you everything. This is the idea of faith alone. Now, and even this, according to scriptures, a a God declares a person righteous even before they actually start becoming righteous, okay? So this shows us that God isn't waiting back for us to sort of show that our faith is somehow qualified or good enough to earn his forgiveness, but rather he moves towards us before we're even becoming righteous, in fact, why we are still, while we are still his enemies. And so we look back at Abraham. We talked at Abraham. We talked about Abraham at baptism. In Genesis 15, 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you see, this isn't a new thing. This is how God works. When we look away from ourselves at the work of God in Jesus, the work of Jesus is applied to us. And the way that happens is through faith, the gift of looking away from ourselves to Jesus. And this was the question in the doctrine of faith alone. So are you saying then that the benefit, the merits, the righteousness of Jesus is actually put on us, counted to us, reckoned to us by merely looking away from our own self and our own works to Jesus? That's all it is? And the answer is yes. That's alone, faith alone. And so that was a big deal and it still is. 
And Paul teaches us that the Christian life doesn't just begin that way. It's not like that's your entrance exam. Like if you can possibly look away from yourself and get in, then you gotta start working a little bit or God's gonna get upset with you and kick you out. But no, no, no. Faith is the way we continue to live the Christian life. Paul says in Galatians 2 that the life that he now lives in Christ, he lives by faith. And then in Colossians 2, Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, continue receiving him or believing or trusting in him. The Christian life is not, you look at Jesus, now you're in, but now you better straighten up. No, it's actually a continued process of looking away from yourself to Jesus. So that is walking in faith. Now, what about repentance, right? What about repentance? Don't we have to repent in order to have faith? And the answer is yes. But faith and repentance are the same thing, viewed from a negative or a positive perspective, right? To repent, to truly repent, you can say that is to look to Jesus in faith. That is repentance. Nothing else is repentance. And so to turn from whatever it is, that's sin, and to look to Jesus, that is faith. So repentance and faith are the same, are two sides of the same coin. And so, Herman Bovink is my favorite dead theologian. And he says, justification does not depend on repentance, which always remains incomplete, but rests in God's promise and becomes ours by faith alone. You see, that's why Martin Luther's very first theses in the 95 Theses was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Another way to say that is, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of constantly looking away from themselves to the work of Jesus or faith. And so to rightly profess the doctrine is to say, the way the benefits and life and work of Jesus gets counted to me so that God sees me as perfect, the way that happens is by faith alone, looking away from myself over and over and over at Jesus. Okay, so that's how you rightly profess it. But how do we live this? How does it become a shaping influence in our life rather than just some abstract doctrine that we know how to profess? First of all, it's important to know that we must choose daily to rest in Jesus. If we're going to walk and live in faith, this is a daily choice. We're we're daily choosing to rest in Jesus. Saving faith is not a psychological certainty. It's not a certain level of psychological certainty. In other words, I know that I'm saved when I am certain somehow in my mind that I am saved, that my faith is good enough. Rather, saving faith is an act of the will in which we choose to rest in Jesus. And this is not an act to choose in some abstract principle. Saving faith is personal trust in Jesus. It's trusting that he's good enough. It's trusting that his work actually is enough for me. It's a relational trust. It's fully trusting in. And so that's why theologians talk about faith in three ways. They say there's knowledge, there's belief, and there's trust. So for example, I need to know what Jesus has done for me at some level. And basically what our children are learning right now, the young ones, is that 
Jesus died for your sins. They have to know that. And then there has to be a belief that that's actually true, right? There's knowledge and there's belief. But James says, even the devil knows God, knows who he is. He believes that he's true. However, what he lacks is trust. And this is a consequential trust. So imagine this. Imagine that you're sick and you go to a physician, but maybe you don't have one. So you don't have, you're not sure where to go. So you ask around and you get recommended from two or three people to go to a certain physician and you look it up and they got good ratings and, you know, yeah, absolutely. They're board certified. You walk into the room, you're like, oh yeah, there's their diploma maybe. And the room is filled with people. So you know that they're trustworthy because they went to school, they're board certified. You believe that it's true that you can trust them because your friends tell you that you can trust them and there are other people in the room. And you think, well, these people are coming back, right? I guess the trustworthy physician. And that's all right and good. And then you go in and you see them and he or she uh, looks at you and may give you test results. And all of a sudden, the things they begin to tell you require more than general trust. They may tell you, this is not right. This is not good. And I recommend that in order to move forward in healing you, you must do this, this, and this. And I know that sounds harsh. It may even sound scary, but this is important that we do this. In that moment, for you to respond and say yes to that plan of treatment, you have to move from some general trust, some knowledge, some belief to a consequential trust. All of a sudden, in that moment, you are fully resting in the competency and direction in this person. That is consequential. It affects your life. Thomas Sowell's wrote a book called How Intellectuals Ruined the World. He is an intellectual. And he talks about consequential knowledge is the knowledge that is actually helpful. And he tells a story. Imagine he's landing on an airplane, and as he's coming down, They're getting closer and closer to the ground. And then out of nowhere, the plane takes off and circles around and comes back and the second time lands. And on the way out, he asks, what happened to one of the flight attendants? And they said, well, as we were landing, someone from the ground in the flight control tower called in and said, your landing gear is not down. And so they pulled up, came around, put the landing gear down and landed. He said, that was consequential knowledge. You see, there's general knowledge, there's general trust, and there's consequential trust. And so for us to choose daily to rest in Jesus is to choose a type of consequential trust. This is an invitation to trust Jesus in such a way where it actually changes the way you live your life. It's not just a sticky note on your life, but it's a trust that actually redirects often the very decisions you make the very future choices you intend to make. Not a general trust, but a consequential trust that changes the very direction of your life. And I think that there's a misconception that if I had the type of strong faith that leaned into Jesus with consequential trust, that it would always be easy. And that if it's difficult in any way, then I must not have very strong faith. And I think that is ridiculous. I think that 
for, for us to think that, for us to believe that, puts way, way, way too much stock in our ability to have some type of trust that Jesus would actually say, good job. That's amazing. Look at you. Look at you. Would somehow be impressed with some faith that we could come up with. To actually choose consequential trust is actually an invitation to a new depth of knowledge of both yourself and of Jesus. And those are scary places. Because all of a sudden, when you accept that invitation to reflect upon the very things that you're trusting in day in and day out, when that happens, you start to pray and things that come to your mind and heart and mouth are really disturbing. You start to talk about your struggles with friends. And as you're talking about it, you're ashamed of what you're saying. You can't believe that you would think that. I think that's normal. And I think that's part of what we should understand when we think about dying to self. You see, when we choose consequential trust, it's not just bringing the things we're ashamed of to Jesus. It's also repenting and turning from the things we're proud of when we come to Jesus. You see, it feels like death when you look away from yourself and from your own accomplishments. It feels like death to divest yourself of accolades. It feels like death to turn away from your perceived sense of wisdom and to rest in Jesus. It feels like death. And I think that's the Christian life. Because it's in that very turning that we receive life, that we're reminded that Jesus is enough. And so day in and day out, the Christian life is dying to self. The Christian life is choosing to turn away from yourself to Jesus. And lastly, to practice faith alone, we don't just choose daily to rest in Jesus, but we also renounce a life of earning. And this may be one of the most challenging things we do. Our very society is built on this reality that People who work hard always get ahead. That's just not true. You can work really hard and lose. There are privileges that you have that other people don't have. There are privileges that other people have that you don't have. But it's still baked into our very DNA that all I have to do is work hard. But see, the thing is, is when we believe that, once we do gain achievements and we do earn some type of privilege, it makes it really hard to give that up. It makes it really hard to give that up. You see, to gain the privileges and achievements of Jesus, we have to give up our own privileges. We have to give up our own achievements. Now, this doesn't mean we can't celebrate accomplishments and work hard for things. It does not mean that. What it does mean, though, is we have to renounce any sense of earning with God. There is no sense of earning anything with God. And the life of faith is a life that places, again, its resting place in Jesus. The life of faith is a constant relocation of your resting place away from the edge of that bench that's going to flip you over and back to the center. It's a constant relocation of the very place that you and I find our value. And fundamentally, what we're talking about in faith alone is a resting in Jesus 
for our justification before God. That is, that when we rest in him by faith, looking away from ourselves, we then are right with God. We become a child of God. We're in union with Jesus. And when God sees us, he sees a perfect record. That's what we're talking about. Yet that has far-reaching implications, implications that I'm not sure we always think about when we think about this renouncing of a life of earning. You see, we all have a certain image that we desire others to see us by. All of us, some of us, we want to be seen as a good parent, one that's very thoughtful, one that is very consistent. We maybe want to be seen as a good spouse or a good friend or a great employee, maybe the best one. Maybe we want to be seen as an amazing student or an early riser, right? Because those are the most successful people. So we want to make sure everyone sees us as an early riser. Maybe in our certain circles of place of work and our communities that we're in, maybe the people who are really valued are the super creative ones. And so we do anything we can to be seen as creative, whatever that means. Some of us, we were taught that the only way to have value, to be seen as valuable, is to be the hardest worker. And if you don't perceive yourself always to be the hardest worker, you feel like a failure. Maybe you were taught that in order to be valued, in order to be worth anything, you needed to be smart. And that if things take a while to come to you, it's not about hard work, it's about how fast they come to you. And if they don't come to you quickly, then you're dumb. Some of you were taught, some of us were taught that in order to be worthy of being seen and and heard is that everything you say is always wise. No failure, no margin of error. You'll be put in a box as soon as you say something that's a little bit off the wall. Some of you were taught, some of us were taught that in order to be liked, in order to be loved, you need to always be funny. Or that you need to be the most caring and thoughtful person or the most mature person. But when we're resting in Jesus, this all changes. You don't have to reach those standards in order to be valued. In order for the value and beauty and work of Jesus to be counted to you, you don't have to be the wisest person. You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the funniest person. You don't have to constantly be replaying that conversation in your mind later on. I wish I would have said that. Oh, why didn't I say that? You don't have to constantly be looking for the opportunity to bring up the fact that you've been up since 5 a.m. working really hard or that you stayed up till 2 a.m. trying to get something just right. You also don't have to hide the fact that you stayed up till 2 a.m. Netflix binging, procrastinating that thing that you really should have been working on. You see, if we really believe that the value and record of Jesus gets applied to us by faith alone, and that we become righteous in God's sight, not because of anything we do, has profound impact on the way we treat others. You see, I was talking with a friend this week, and he said, you know, I realized something. I'm not envious of people who do better than me. I'm not envious of people who have more than me, whether it's success or stuff. 
You know the people that I despise are the people that I think didn't work as hard as me but have more than me. You see, that's, that's pride. That's a fundamental buying into the paradigm of earning. So if it's not the paradigm of earning, what is it then? Well, I think it's a paradigm of gratitude. You see, a life of earning leads to a life of hiding. It leads to a life of striving and ultimately to a life of bitterness because you hide when you fail and you strive to prove yourself and when you don't feel vindicated by your performance or appreciated, you get bitter. Those are fundamental evidences that we continue to buy in to this belief of earning. So how is it that Paul can do this? How is it that Paul can be, have one of the most impressive resumes in the entire world as a Jew and count it as rubbish, he says? How is that possible? How could that even be possible for you and me who don't even get close to that, and yet we have a hard time divesting ourselves of our own privilege and entitlement? We have a hard time believing that really we're valuable because Jesus makes us valuable by looking away from ourselves, not saying, look at me, look at me, look what I did, look what I did. We think that's where value comes from so often. So how did Paul do it? How did Paul divest himself? Well, I think he so boldly could renounce his privileges and accomplishments because of something that I read, we all read in community Bible reading in Philippians chapter one. So today our scripture reading is Philippians chapter three. In Philippians chapter one, verse eight, I'm reading chapter one. And chapter one is thanksgiving and prayer. And he's thanking God for the Philippians and all of the wonderful things that God is doing in their midst. And he gets to verse eight and he says, oh, wrong book. He gets to verse eight and he says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it just shot out at me. And I thought, well, where does Paul get this affection for them? He gets it from Jesus. You see, Paul, in his service to the Philippians, in his prayer for them, gets wrapped up in the way that Jesus views them, and he begins to view them that way. You see, some of us, we're afraid to divest ourselves from our own accomplishments because we believe God is an ogre in the sky who is constantly distancing himself. Like, I don't know if I can trust that. That right there, I don't know if that's quite what I'm looking for in terms of faith. I don't, I don't know if you looked at me long enough before you look back to yourself. I don't know if that faith counts. We, we sort of view that if we're going to get any blessing from God that we need to pry his hands open so often. And really, that's where legalism or trying to keep the rules to earn God's favor or even licentiousness, rejecting all of God's rules to live our own life, they both come from this place that thinks God is stingy. One just says, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm out. And one just says, oh, but maybe if I work hard enough, maybe, maybe then he'll love me. They both come from the same place. Seeing God as stingy. Seeing Jesus as aloof. Rather than, as Paul says, that for us in Christ He is yearning with affection for us. I think when we see that, we realize anything we ever could do, any performance we ever could do would be shaky at best. It would pale in comparison to gaining Christ, as Paul says. 
So I think this is at least part of the answer of why Paul can so boldly renounce his privileges and his accomplishments. God's not a cynic waiting for you to prove your faith. But actually, God is so attuned to us that he's attuned to the slightest turning of our hearts towards him. The slightest turning. Because the slightest turning away from yourself is an amazing gift of God. You would never look away from yourself, ever, 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 without the mercy, grace, and power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, our faith doesn't have to be perfect. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning, you can look away from yourself to Jesus. You look away to the cross and you see he lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He now, he ascended into heaven. He's praying for me. He was resurrected to glory. All of that can be mine by looking away from myself. That's what Jesus meant when he said, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. You see, faith alone, practicing it, is a day in, day out of us relocating the very trust, the very foundation, the very resting point of our life. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you are always attuned to the slightest turning of our heart. Like the thief on the cross, you didn't say, sorry, too late, You had plenty of chances to repent. I don't know if I can trust you now since you're dying. But yet you're merciful. You don't need us. You don't have anything to prove. But you came and gave yourself for us, Jesus, because you wanted us. Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would comfort those who feel ashamed, who feel guilty, knowing that the answer is not putting in the time of penance, feeling bad for a long enough time. But the answer for all of us is to turn back, to look and gaze upon you, Jesus, to see you, to look at you and not ourselves. Help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.